Hi, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and welcome again to the Lead from the Heart podcast. A few weeks ago, my guest Jim Cruz has told me on the show that the CEO he most admires in America is Gary Ridge, the president of the WD-40 company. And just recently, Inc. Magazine doubled down on that impressive endorsement by ranking Gary number four on its top 10 list of global CEOs. And so it's really quite wonderful for me to announce that my guest this week is Gary Ridge. And my goal over the next hour is to discover not only why he's so highly respected in business, but also why he believes a workplace culture that truly values people is the leadership model needing adoption in the 21st century. And as a little background, WD-40 is the multi-purpose lubricant that comes in a blue and yellow can and is likely sitting somewhere handy in your garage or workbench right now. And along with other products you're familiar with, like 3-in-1 oil and lava soap, the WD-40 company markets to 160 different countries around the globe, and this year celebrates its 65th anniversary. And for the past 20 of those years, Gary Ridge has been at the helm of the WD-40 company, and he's taken the firm to record profitability, while not surprisingly also has taken employee engagement to extraordinary heights as well. And a few years ago, Gary also became an author, along with his collaborator, the very well-known Ken Blanchard. His book title, Helping People Win at Work, tells us a whole lot about his managerial philosophy. So as you're about to hear, Gary is a master at leading from the heart. And Gary Ridge, welcome to the podcast. G'day, Mark. Good to be here. Well, thank you, sir. Well, I want to get right at it and ask you if you could start by telling our audience, uh, you know, give our audience a greater understanding of you and your approach to leading your company. Uh, tell us the path you took to becoming the CEO at WD-40 and what influenced you to create a workplace culture that really intentionally focuses on people. Thanks. Yeah, Mark, it's been an incredible journey. I just celebrated actually 31 years with the company. I just said 20 or so as the honoured person to lead our tribe. I'm originally from Sydney, Australia. I joined them in 1987 in Sydney and uh, my dad was an engineer and I remember speaking to him one day about WD-40 and the offer I'd had to go work for them and he said, quote unquote, you can't go wrong with that stuff, son. And I guess dad was right. And in um, 1994, I moved to the US and I, I was given the opportunity to lead our global expansion. Back then, the majority of our business was in the United States. Today, nearly 65% is outside the United States. And then in 1997, when I got to lead the company, we started on the journey of building a, a magnificent place to work. And I guess the people I really have to thank for that are the wonderful tribe members of WD-40 company who, who get up every day to make a difference to something that's bigger than themselves and, and learn and grow. What influenced you to lead this way and to make your company people-centric? Was WD-40 always like that, or did you bring a different approach when you became CEO? Oh, I, I bought a different approach, and it was pretty simple. I'm consciously incompetent. I realized that there was much I didn't know, and I really also realized that micromanagement wasn't scalable. So if we were to grow outside of the United States, we had to be surrounded and have a lot of people in the organization that knew a lot more than I did. And that was pretty much the simplicity of it. So we went out to really do that. 
and today we have a wonderful organization of people that are knowledgeable across many, many aspects of our business. Well, you mentioned it a second ago, and Jim Kuzis actually mentioned it during his interview on the podcast a few weeks ago. You refer to your employees as a tribe, and he even said you have a teepee in the lobby of your headquarters. So how did this originate? And it sort of implies that you treat your people as a family. And I'd love to know what your thought process is in creating all of this culture. Sure. If you're aware of Maslow's hierarchy to self-actualization, the first two rungs or steps in that pyramid that you climb are safety and security and survival. And and most organizations provide that. But one of the biggest desires we have as human beings is to belong. And really, when we started thinking about what can you belong to, and I went back and I studied the attributes of tribes in Australia, the Australian Aborigines, the Fijian Islanders, and I had some really interesting learning. When you look at a tribe, the number one responsibility of a tribal leader is to be a learner and a teacher. And if you can imagine if we were back a few thousand years ago in in Australia and we happened to come across an Australian Aborigine tribe at a gathering, the leader of the tribe would be teaching the younger tribe members how to throw a boomerang. Now, if anybody's ever tried to throw a boomerang, it's not a really easy thing to do. And if you weren't proficient at it back then, your chances of survival were not very high. So we said, yeah, okay, if we're going to be a learning and teaching organization, tribe is a great word. There are other attributes, too, that are very important to us, the attributes of values. Tribes have values of being warriors, of being future-focused, understanding there's people that need specialized skills within the tribe, and then, of course, of celebration. So we see ourselves as a tribe, and if you've read any books on tribes, You know, there's a a really lovely statement that says a tribe is a group of people who band together to really survive and celebrate. And that's what we do at the company. And people here will tell you they're a member of the WD-40 tribe. It's fantastic. So one thing I'm certain you're familiar with is that, you know, Gallup's ongoing research not only shows that employee engagement isn't getting it better around the world, but it reminds us that the solutions are now quite well known. And I have a few questions related to this. And the first one is, is why do you believe so many of your fellow CEOs have yet to take engagement seriously? They're scared of it. It's simple, but it's not easy. And time is not your friend when you have to build an organization where people come first. Uh, If they're public companies, they may be bowing to the short-term thinking of Wall Street, which they're looking for people who can run businesses in 90-day intervals, which is not something you can do over time. So I think that's some of the things, you know, in our letter to shareholders in 2017, I, I wrote, our job is to make sure we create an environment where our tribe members wake up each day inspired to go to work, feel safe while they are there and return home at the end of the day fulfilled by the work they do feeling that they've learned something new and contributed to something bigger than themselves. If this is the world we envisage, and if we can create this world for our people, they will take care of our customers, and that will in turn take care of our stockholders. So I think the short vision that's out there these days doesn't encourage people 
to build an enduring company that's going to be around for many years to come. Well, what are some of the traditional practices and beliefs that you think need to be discarded in business today? Well, number one is, let's talk about the things that they should do. Leaders need to involve their people, number one. They need to always be in servant leadership mode. I love what Simon Sinek says. He says, leadership is not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in charge. They're expected to be competent. So as leaders, we have to be continually in learning mode. We have to have a very high EQ, caring more about others than we actually care about ourselves. We need to have a strong sense of self-worth because we do go through tough times. We need to value the gift of feedback. And in a lot of cases, you know, once CEOs get to the position of CEO, they might feel they don't need it as much as they did, but they need more of it. And then we need to be champions of hope. And I think if we can think about leadership in these ways, we do create an environment where people do believe and and are rewarded and recognized for the great work that they do. Well, one of the things that continues to strike me just in listening to you is you really care about your people. And I think that's sort of a binary thing. Either you do or you don't. How did you, I'm not really sure I get how you learned to be this thoughtful about your people, this caring, this uh, wonderful, really. And knowing that this is going to drive your business, what influenced that? I guess one of the awakenings was back in 1999. I, well, if I go back to the start, I was fortunate enough to grow up uh, in Australia and uh, I had some mentors early in my life where I worked in different organizations and they showed me the value of trust and the value of care. But I was also reading at some of the Dalai Lama's work at one time and he said, our purpose in life is to make people happy. If you can't make them happy, at least don't hurt them. And I really kind of like that statement in that Life is a gift. We shouldn't send it back unwrapped. And if we treat people with respect and dignity, if we care about them, if we're candid with them, which means no lying, no faking and no hiding, if we hold ourselves accountable, we're going to get the respect of people and we will respect them. And in turn, together we can do great things. So I think it's just really about that consciousness of, being consciously incompetent and knowing you don't know it all. And really, there's nothing bad about caring for people. Well, except that it's not all that common in business, which leads me to another question related to the Gallup, is that like in the last couple of weeks, they said 51% of American workers are looking for another job. Do you believe that stat? And if you do, what's the disconnect between how you care about your people and the rest of the world? Yeah, I do believe it. And I'm looking for those 51%. We always, we always want good new tribe members. But I think it's because they work in toxic environments. You know, it's a shame that most people only know they're doing a good job because no one yelled at them today. One of the things that we're proud of is that in our latest employee opinion survey, and we've been doing these for 20 years, we just completed our latest one just this month. And 99% of our people globally say they'd love to tell people that they work at WD-40 company. 
And why do they love to, to mm-hmm. work here? Because we care about them and we treat them with respect and dignity and we challenge them and we give them meaningful work to do and we celebrate with them. And all of the attributes that I shared with you about being tribal are very, very important. You've made a point of establishing company values very explicitly. And you mentioned three or four times now this idea of a compelling purpose. So tell us why the values and purpose are important to your success and and how do your people connect into those and make them real in their own lives? Well, our purpose, if you think about it, you know, if you ask me, what do I do? And I say, I sell oil in a can. That's pretty boring, right? But our purpose is we exist to create positive, lasting memories in everything we do. We solve problems, we make things work smoothly, and we create opportunities. So that's why we all get up every day. We're there to solve problems, and that's a purpose that we enjoy, and we're there to create opportunities. Values are what set people free in an organization. A lot of people think values are constraining. They're absolutely not. And our values are in place to help people understand what's important and help them make decisions so they don't have to keep barking up the hierarchy to be able to do wonderful things. So certainly um, our values are the cornerstone or the bedrock of, of what we do in the company. And when you're spread across the world like we are in countries from China to the UK to Germany to Australia to Malaysia and wherever, if you don't have a common set of values to help guide people's behaviours, they can go native very quickly. What so, percentage of companies do you think actually have values that are aligned to the behavior of management? In other words, not just platitudes, but livable, breathable values. Not a lot. Not a lot that I've seen evidence that they've actually put them to work. There's a lot that I know don't because we see those train wrecks every day, Millie. You know, we can name the companies that have had values that they've intentionally violated or haven't lived by. We only have two measures of our values. You either visit them or you live them, and we don't like a lot of visitors. Well, it still challenges most people in their workday thinking there are no real guideposts that anybody is willing to hold on to in moments of difficulty and challenge. And I wonder how it's so easy for you to hold on to this. I got to believe that somewhere in your 30 plus years at WD-40 that you've run into difficulty and that these values, especially in the last 20 years as CEO, have come under some sort of pressure. Is that true? Absolutely. Otherwise, they'd be useless. They've cost us. We've made decisions based on our values. One of our values is we value doing the right thing. And to say that, we've got a mandatory in the company that we will have no cancer-causing chemicals in any of the products we make, no Prop 65 chemicals. And that costs us because our products end up being a little more expensive than some of the cheap, inferior products that don't hold that up high. But I'm okay with that, and our tribe's okay with that. So the value is useless until you test it, and if it doesn't cost you, it's not a value. So, you know, it's, it's important. Well, I want to get to the financials of this, but I, I want to hit something that I read on your website that I just thought was really aligned to what we're talking about in terms of values and culture, but also something that I think is probably extremely rare to be put on a company website, which is that you said the values override financial results when you evaluate employee performance. So what you're really saying is, is that culture and 
aligning oneself as an employee to the culture and values and behaving to them on a day-to-day -day basis matters more to you than whatever they do driving some sort of financial performance. Is that true? And how does that hold up in your organization? Absolutely. The worst thing you can have in an organization is someone whose behavior is all about the financial results in place of living the values. That's toxic cancer within the organization. It really sends a message that you can do anything you want. You can leave anybody you want, any bodies you want on the field. You can cheat. Just do whatever you need to do to get the number. And you know, that's not going to last. So, you know, when people go on our website and our careers page, the first thing that it says is, here are our values. If you can't align with them, don't go any further. Mm -hmm. And you can test competency pretty easily. You know, I can test whether someone is competent with an Excel spreadsheet. And you can teach people. And, you know, one of the things that we're big on here is learning and teaching. It's the number one attribute of a tribe. And, you know, Nelson Mandela said education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. I would say learning is the most powerful weapon we have in our company. So we can help people learn competencies and we do we have a you know, deep training and to commitment to training and development in the company but you know if people don't align with our values that's going to get us in trouble what are some of your values what are the ones you're proudest of well our first one is we value doing the right thing the second one is we value creating positive lasting memories in all of our relationships the third one is we value making it better than it is today the fourth one is we value succeeding as a tribe while excelling as an individual is we value owning it and passionately acting on it. And the last one is we value sustaining the WD-40 economy. And that just means driving financial results, right? It's got to be one of the components. Is that what you're saying? The final one, it could say driving financial results, but it doesn't. It says we want to sustain the economy. That does mean we have to have a financial model that creates value, but then the whole community then benefits from a strong economy. So if we're a strong company, which we are, our tribe members benefit, our community benefits, and our shareholders benefit. We serve all three constituents. Well, we've talked a lot about your focus on employees and on your values and keeping those at least in the middle of the fulcrum, if you will. It sounds like they almost lean slightly towards the employee. What are the financial results of your organization and how have you done over the last five, 10 years in the context of how you're choosing to lead your organization? I think we've done pretty well. I think <laughs> we've had a compounded annual growth rate of total shareholder return in the, at around 13 to 14%. I think our market cap value today is the highest it's ever been. We are valued, I think, at about $1.8 billion dollars. When we started this journey you know, 20 years ago, our market cap was about $250 million. So I think you'll find some pretty happy owners out there. That's going to be my next question in listening to you. Is Have you gotten any pushback from your shareholders, particularly institutional shareholders, to say, hey, you know, you, if you could cut some costs here and do less for your people, we could get 15 to 20% return. I mean, do you hear those kinds of conversations in your board meetings or from shareholders? No, in fact, well, we've got a return on invested capital of over 30%. And in fact, today, the long-term shareholders, people like Panassas and BlackRock and others, 
are really, really more focused than ever before on building sustainable cultures. Because I think it's probably, apart from the tech revolution or whatever you want to call the digital age we've got going on now, I am absolutely ashamed of the fact that 65% of people who go to work every day don't like their job. And last year, there's evidence out there that that cost the economy $2.1 trillion. Not only that, they didn't go home happy, so they've got, you know, we're not adding to their family life or to their joy as a human being at all. So I believe that there's going to be more focus. You probably heard, Mark, about things like say on pay, right, where investors and the regulators got really interested on, on compensation. I wonder what would happen if there was like say on engagement. What happens if companies were forced to publicly declare what their engagement numbers were? I wonder what would happen. Well, you have to agree on a common standard of how it gets reported, obviously. But uh, yeah, it would put a lot of CEOs to shame for getting 350 times the income relative to their median employee income, right? I mean, it's kind of where, where the number's coming out right now, and I totally agree with you. By the way, Jeffrey Pfeffer at Stanford has come out and said that the way we manage people is killing about 120,000 American workers every year through stress and health deprivation, sleep deprivation, all those kinds of things. So the points that you're making are really, really powerful. And what I think I want to underscore here is just the idea that you're driving wonderful financial performance. And by the way, to be selected as a stock in Parnassus, having done a lot of research and actually going there and, and meeting the CEO and, and understanding his philosophy, you have to be a deeply caring, high-performing organization, both of those components to be in his workplace fund. So um, congratulations. I, you know, I'm just totally in admiration of how you have not only defined True North, but that you're aligned to it, which I think is what uh, some people listening to this are probably shaking their heads saying, the moment our values get put under stress, we forget we have values altogether, right? You know? just as a matter of interest on Panassas, they flip in and out of being either our largest or our second largest shareholder. And they've been a shareholder for 15 years. That's just absolutely fantastic. And is that in the, the Workplace Endeavor Fund? Um, I'm not sure which fund it's in. That's been one of the most astonishingly high-performing mutual funds in its class for the last, you know, since actually since its inception. So once again, being a part of that portfolio is fantastic. Gary, I want to do a brief departure from this great discussion. We're going to go into a segment called the Heartbeat Round. Our listeners... Oh. Our listeners are really interested in getting to know you, even though you're doing a wonderful job of really sharing your personal philosophy. I'm going to ask you 20 quick questions, so just give me whatever comes to your mind. In other words, answer each of these questions in a heartbeat. So, you ready? Okay. All right. Yeah. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? The Economist. The quality you admire most in other people? Empathy. The activity that makes you... Gary Ridge, Come Alive. Seeing people learn and grow. Greatest book you've ever read? All I really need to know I learned in kindergarten. Mm. Carrot or stick? Both. The best coach in professional or collegiate sports today? Oh, Eddie Jones, the Australian coach of the English rugby team. Hmm. I haven't heard that one yet. 
thing about Australia you miss the most? Mateship. Meditation practice, yes or no? Yes. World leader of any era. Business, government, Nelson. spiritual, you most admire. Nelson Mandela. Suit or business casual? Shorts and flip-flops. Really? Yeah. At work? Oh, no. You didn't ask me at work. Um, I know. I'm, you're right. These are supposed to be quick questions, so we're going to leave it there. <laughs> the quality that derails the most leadership careers? Ego. Person today who you think is having the most positive impact on society? I'm still looking for them. Oh, that's sad. Greatest piece of advice you've ever received? It's not about you. Favorite band or singer? Elton John. Quote that best captures your life philosophy? Our purpose in life is to make people happy. If you can't make them happy, at least don't hurt them. Favorite podcast, of course, besides this one? Uh, I have two, actually. Um, the Coaching Habit and Disrupt Yourself. Company today whose leadership practices you think set the standards for others to follow and can't answer WD-40, although I will put that one in there. Barry Waymiller and Bob Chapman, the CEO. Great company. Wonderful. Skill improvement you're working on right now. I'm a total work in progress. <laughs> Anything you've got on spotlighting right now you'd like to get better at? A whole lot of stuff. All right. Okay. A life lesson you wish you'd learned a lot earlier in life? Um, the three words, I don't know. Hmm. And final question, proudest accomplishment of your life? Learning the power of learning. Wonderful. Well, thank you. That was great. And now I have a few broader questions I want to return to before I let you go. What qualities do the most extraordinary leaders share in your opinion? And when it comes to your choosing people for WD management teams, what are the qualities that you insist upon? In other words, do you have any binary qualities where if you don't see them, they don't get, on, get to come on board, particularly in leadership roles? Yeah, I, I think getting back to something we've spoken about earlier, someone who cares, who knows it's not all about them, someone who's comfortable with candor, and I call candor no lying, no faking, and no hiding, and um, someone who's comfortable with accountability. And I mean accountability of themselves as well as accountability of others. Does that apply then to, uh, so I, I want to dig into this just a little bit more. Are there any of those that you just mentioned where if you don't see them, if they, if you can't see they have candor or you haven't seen a demonstration that they can be fully accountable on all levels, any of those, do any of them stand out where you say we just can't bring somebody on unless they have these qualities? Yeah, I think the, the most important one is, is what I called empathy earlier on or caring. I mean, if there's no care in their heart, they're not going to survive. They have to know that it's not just about them. They have to have a true sense of caring for others. So if you don't mind, I'm going to push back on that because you use two words that are very familiar to me. One is care and the other is heart. And whenever I use them, well, let's just say not whenever, but frequently when I use them, I lose people. I lose them in the sense that they just immediately construe it as being soft, weak, sentimental, spiritual, religious, 
somebody who clearly doesn't understand how a business gets run. Now, I know that you personally, you know, are shaking your head and saying those people are wrong, but that is the common understanding. And I think a lot of leaders who think like that are succeeding. And I wonder how you reconcile that. Well, I didn't say it was the only. Let me put it this way. It's a balance between being tender-hearted and tough-minded. And where most leaders get it wrong, they're either at one end or the other end of that scale. Mm -hmm. And there's evidence out there that people who work in organizations where the leadership is too tender-hearted, they feel insecure and at risk. And where it's too tough-minded, they feel insecure and at risk. So I think one of the things we need to do and have to do as leaders is understand that our, our role is a balance between being tough-minded and tender-hearted, and the genius is in the end. How does somebody cultivate that then? Because what you're saying is you need to be strong mind and strong heart. And by the way, there aren't too many companies that I can come up with that are you know, lean too far in the direction of the heart, but um, I imagine they are out there. But to the extent that you are listening to this and you're saying, okay, but how does that play out? How do I learn to be that kind of a leader? And what skills do I really need to cultivate in order to be as successful as you are and emulate the kind of behaviors that you do? Well, I think you would first clearly understand what both of those ends of that spectrum mean. So, you know, you could write down the attributes of a tender heart and you could write down the attributes of a tough mind and you could really gauge yourself where you sit either side and then question, why are you where you are? And I agree with you. Most people think servant leadership is about holding kumbaya singing lessons on a Sunday afternoon in the, in the golfer's car park. And it's not that at all. You know, as we know, my dear friend Ken Blanchard talks about servant leadership, which is really about caring. And there's two words there, there's servant and leadership. So the leadership part of that statement is a, is, is a role that we have to take. We have to make sure that we have organizations that have the talent, and the treasure, the technology, the strategy, all of the things that go into place and the purpose and the values to make it a rigorous and effective organization. And once we've got all that in place, you know, we turn the business upside down and we become servants to, to our people who need to um, achieve that. And our job then is to not mark their paper, as I wrote in the book with Ken and Blanchard. It's not to mark their paper, but it's to help them get an A. And that's the balance. So, you know, I think people are scared that if they are seen to be too caring, they're soft. I, I'm going to tell you, I'm not that so, so much of a soft guy. You know, I played rugby in Australia and, you know, I've been in a couple of scrums in my life. But I tell you what I do do. I do love the fact that we have people that we can care about every day and, and recognize them. And, and it just makes people shine. And people will do more great stuff if they love what they're doing. Well, you know, it's you interesting know, because... Aristotle, we're pretty slow learners. Back in 385 BC, Aristotle said... Uh, pleasure in the work puts perfection in the job. And here we are still trying to work out why we don't put pleasure in the work. Well, I think because we're at odds with it, right? We, we have this fundamental belief that if people are too happy at work, they get soft around the middle and they underperform. And that's going to cost me as a business owner or a leader, right? Isn't that the driver of that kind of thinking? 
Well, it may well be, but I'll give you another statistic that is a really cool one. In our employee opinion survey, the latest one said, one of the questions is, I know what results are expected of me. And 97.4% of our global employee base positively said they know that. So sure, you know, if you don't have expectations and you don't have goals and you don't have clarity around what's expected and you just are nice to people, of course they're going to go that way. Mm-hmm. But that's the difference between tough-minded and tender-hearted. Here's where we're going. Here's what we want to do. Here's how we're going to reward you. Are you on site? And I'm going to do everything I can every day to help you be successful. And we're going to have fun doing it. One thing that uh, I've been really dying to ask you has to do with just the the sexiness of your product, if you will. So, you know, it's kind of cool to work at Apple or it's cool to work at Google or Facebook or any of these emerging technology companies. And you've got a 65-year-old product that is consumable and... I don't think you're reinventing it on any level, and yet you've got really passionate people. So can you kind of explain how you keep the fire in people when they're not really doing the next big thing? Well, number one is we sell memories. And I'm sure you can tell me right now a time when the blue and yellow cam with a little red top made a hero out of you. Um, True. We're in the memories business. We're not about selling cans of oil. Secondly, you know, we are doing a lot of exciting things in product development, new delivery systems, innovation, brand extension. What's really exciting to me today, for the very first time, someone in China will pick up and meet the blue and yellow cam with a little red top for the very first time. So market development is exciting for us. So I think if you saw any one of our tribe members and asked them, are we doing exciting, innovative things, they would say yes. And it's all about creating positive, lasting memories. We're in the memories business. That's what we do every day. I love that reframe. And it's a very positive reframe. And it underscores the fact that there isn't any business on this planet that can't do what you did to get people excited about the work itself that's aligned to the mission that you have. So there's just a lot of brilliance in what you're talking about. I want to know... You've talked about the number one responsibility of being a leader you were implying a minute ago is being both a student and a teacher, right? So just because of all the different works that you've quoted, I want to start with you. How do you grow? What are you doing to cultivate yourself? You sound like you're a reader or do you read a lot of books and what do you read? I'd love to get a sense of how Gary Ridge grows himself. Sure. Well, I teach. I, I'm an adjunct professor at USD. I teach culture and succession planning and talent management. I do the same at the uh, LAMP School at UCSD, and I do the same at SDSU. I mix with a, a lot of great people. I'm in the Marshall Goldsmith MG100 group, and in fact, tomorrow I'll just spend time with 100 magnificent people like Price Pritchard, who just released a new book, Simon Sinek is a mate of mine. Marshall Goldsmith has been a friend for many years. Ken Blanchard. I'm just a sucker for being around inspirational people or people that are a lot smarter than I am. Uh, do I read? I listen a lot more these days than I read. So I, I do audio books. I love Brené Brown's latest book, Braving the Wilderness. So if you ever get an email from me, you'll see my sign-off is Encaro Imparo, which is learning I always am. 
Fantastic. And then what about cultivating your own employees? What are you, besides sending them to training, what's sort of the cultural drive of making people better, expanding them? Oh, it's, it's to the cornerstone of our, of our business. Uh, you know, we say at WD40, we don't make mistakes. We have learning moments. And learning moments are a big part of our business because, you know, without a culture where you have, you're not afraid of, of sharing something that hasn't gone the way you wanted it to. But uh, we have a, a learning lab in the organization. I think in the past three or four years, we've invested you know, 27,000 hours in internal training and development. So, you know, we're all about the continuation of, in many ways, of people learning either formally, informally, 70% of learnings on the job. So, you know, we don't call out our managers here managers. They're all coaches. So you're either a coach or a second coach. So our, we see ourselves as more as coaches than managers. It's interesting because that's what the millennials want. They grew up mm -hmm. being coached in so many different ways. And so they're really looking for somebody who's an advocate and teach them and groom them. And again, that's very differentiated in the marketplace, which leads me to my next question, which is in your heart of hearts, do you think that there's a tipping point coming? Meaning that our organization is going to break out of our traditional ways like all at once? Do you think this is a 20-year evolution? Where, where, how do you see this happening? I hope so, Mark. I don't know how optimistic I am because, you know, as I quoted Aristotle, you know, we've been at this since 345 BC and we haven't worked it out yet. But I would hope so. I think that today in the United States, anyhow, you know, some of the big investment firms are paying a lot more attention to this. So for the good of the people and the good of companies, I would hope that we would see this. I, I certainly have a personal mission to do as much as I can to prove to people that this type of a culture works. We've got a, if you will, a 20-year case study mm -hmm. that shows that you know, increased employee engagement correlates pretty closely to increased shareholder value. And we've done it with a boring can of oil. So I think that's one of the reasons I'm chatting with you today. I have a personal why statement, and it is that, you know, I get up to inspire people to create positive, lasting memories. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. And I write articles, I speak, and I do podcasts to encourage people to be bold and be brilliant and to just try and see what they can do if they unlash the power of the people. Well, it's absolutely fantastic. And I guess in, in closing off here, I, I would just ask, is, is there anything that you just want to make sure in the spirit of your own personal mission that you convey to our audience about leading people? What What is going to inspire people what's going to leave a lasting legacy and what's also going to drive performance that's sort of the trifecta what are some final thoughts from you gary well it is all about the people and i don't know if you know francis hesselbein she's a 102 years old was the leader of girl guides was a student of peter drucker and she had four principles and they were have respect for all people think first speak last ask don't tell and be an opener of doors. And I think if you take those principles and you have a true caring heart and you get a lot of satisfaction out of watching people succeed, you can be one of those leaders. And I truly believe 
that purpose-driven, passionate people guided by their values create amazing outcomes. Well, thank you. I will say that five years ago, I was having a conversation with your mate, Ken Blanchard, and asked him who he thought was the, uh, the most effective CEO out there. And then five years later, to hear Jim Cousa say the exact same thing, I kind of had a sense going into this discussion that you were going to be uh, a, a huge advocate for the heart and for people and for caring, but also the demanding side and knowing what it takes to run a business and for a CEO to articulate so thoroughly and so instinctively these values with our audience. I, I, I just, I'm going to put a frame around this one because I just think you did a wonderful job and I'm very, very grateful. So thank you so very, very much, Gary. We are really, really grateful that you joined us on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. Now, before we end today, I'd like to thank my producer, Eric Oz, my web manager, Randy Young, and my friend of friends, Ken Boynton, for all of his incredible help. And I also want to thank you, my audience, for joining me here and for giving this podcast your support. Please know that it matters to me more than you can ever know. And until the next time, never forget, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now.